All right. Hey, grab a copy of God's Word. Turn on your Bible, whichever one, but get to Isaiah chapter 9. Now, some of you may wonder where Isaiah is. It's in the Old Testament. Actually, if you almost like split your Bible in half, you're going to probably maybe land there. And, and an easy way is find the book of Psalms, find the book of Proverbs, find the book of Ecclesiastes, find the book of Song of Solomon. And right after the Song of Solomon is Isaiah. All right. If you get to Jeremiah and places like that, you've gone too far, turn left and go backwards. But we are in Isaiah chapter 9 today, and uh, we've been in a series, Christmas series, entitled, Look Who's Coming to Christmas. And today we are looking at the King. The King is coming to Christmas. You know, I graduated high school in 1985. It seems like just yesterday, but... Um, but um, one of, the, one of the, the, the bands that I like to listen to, and all of you who are like 30 and under, if you want to um, Google this or YouTube it, you're going you're gonna to look this up and go, that was awesome. And um, one of the bands that I like to listen to in high school was Loverboy. How many of you remember that band, Loverboy? Norm's like, I do. I remember that group. Well, one of the songs that they sang was um, Working... For the weekend. You see, you all know it. Working for the weekend. And the idea is, is like, man, you know, we're all kind of pressing through the week. And Monday through Friday, man, it's this is laboring at the office. It's laboring at the job. But, man, we are working for the weekend because you get to the weekend, everything's okay. All right? Isn't vacation like that also? You, you plan your two weeks vacation, and, and maybe it's going, you're, you're going like away, you're going to the beach, you're going somewhere, you're like, yeah, we're going on vacation. And, but yet you've you got to labor through the, the, the weeks and the months. But each month goes by, you go, vacation's coming, vacation's coming. And then when you get to vacation, no matter what took place during the rest of the, it was like, oh, this is awesome. That's what in, we are looking at in Isaiah chapter 9. We're looking at this idea that um, the Messiah is, has come, but is coming again. And here in Isaiah chapter 9, we're going to look at the, these, these first seven verses. And, and what we are going to see is, that Isaiah chapter 9, the book of Isaiah, is what is considered a book of prophecy, all right? Isaiah was a prophet of God, and God would give him, was giving him visions about things that were going to take place in his time, but also about things that were coming in the future. And one of the things that Isaiah prophesied was, was the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And this was something that the Jews knew, okay, that, that, that throughout history, through the years and the centuries, they, they kept looking forward to our Messiah is coming. Because the Jews have been one group of people that have been oppressed for centuries, okay? And the Jewish people, they had enemy after enemy after enemy, and they were looking for their Jewish Messiah. They were looking for their Messiah from heaven to finally deliver them from the oppression and from their enemies. And so here in chapter 9, like so many verses in the book of Isaiah, they are prophetic verses, 
Now, here's the thing about chapter 9, though, these first seven verses. It, it would be considered what I, what I think is called a dual prophetic verse, that there are two prophecies happening simultaneously. Simultaneously. Isaiah gets a prophecy, but he's seeing two different things take place. One is he sees the, the, the first coming of the Messiah. Now, in Isaiah's time, when he would have preached this, the people wouldn't have known who that exactly was. They wouldn't have known when that would, would have taken place. But Isaiah sees somebody coming, and, and he's going to do something. And that was the first coming. Now, for us, we can look back, can't we? Because even if you look at verse 6, now I'm going to dive in here. I'm just trying to set this up. If you look at verse 6, it's our famous Christmas verse. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. That's Christmas, isn't it? We look back and go, that's our Christmas verse. A child, we know, and we know who that, who is that talking about? Jesus, we know that. In Isaiah's time, they didn't know that. And even when Jesus was here, the people started putting the pieces together. That's why when you read in the book of John, when, when, when Jesus called Philip, he says, hey, Philip, follow me. The first thing Philip did was go find this guy by the name of Nathaniel. And he says, Nathaniel, we have found the one who Moses and the prophets have spoken about, Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Dan, Philip was like, well, wait a minute. I remember reading about this stuff. And he's just putting the pieces together. We have the entire puzzle put together. So we know that Jesus has come the first time. But here's the second prophecy that, that Isaiah is seeing. He's seeing a second coming. Not only does he see something take place one time, but then he sees something taking place a second time. Because what we're going to see is there are things that Jesus did when he was here, but he didn't accomplish everything. Because there's going to be some things that he has to accomplish when he comes again. You see, this is the contrast between his first coming and second coming. You see, scripture makes it very clear that we know he came the first time. We know that. But scripture makes it very clear he's coming again. He's coming twice. And the contrast between his first and second coming is between the spiritual and the literal. You see, when he came the first time, he fulfilled the spiritual. But he didn't fulfill the literal. And that's what we're going to see in the book of Isaiah chapter 9. Where he, we're going to see the, the spiritual, but we're also going to see when he comes again, he's going to fulfill literally. And so let's take a look at what is going to take place when the king comes. So here's the first thing. Write this down. When the king comes, darkness is eliminated. When the king comes, darkness is going to be eliminated. So there in chapter 9, starting with verse 1, he says, But there will be no gloom for her. Who was in anguish. The herd that he's talking about is Israel. It says in the former time. He brought into contempt. The land of Zebulun. And the land of Naphtali. Zebulun and Naphtali were first. They were two sons of, of, um, of, of Jacob. And they were two tribes of Israel. But they were two regions within Israel. 
And he says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations or Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, what is this talking about? This is actually, these verses are actually um, reiterated and fulfilled in Matthew chapter four by Jesus. But what Isaiah is seeing is this. Now, this is where it gets confusing. He is seeing something futuristic, but he's also referring backwards. Okay? So when he says there, he says, there will be no gloom for her who was brought was in anguish, for in the former time he was brought into contempt. And what he's talking about is Israel was brought in contempt. So he's he's looking forward. But then he looks back to his own time. And when he says it was, there was no gloom, he was brought in anguish, he's talking about the fact that the Assyrian army was going to conquer Israel. Because if you look at chapter 8, that's exactly what it is. It's a prophecy of the Assyrian army. So he's talking about that in Naphtali and Zebulon, there's going to be anguish. That there's going to be a region of Israel in Isaiah's time that will be conquered by the Assyrian army. But then he starts to also look forward. But he says, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea. This now is where he's starting to see the Messiah. He's like, okay, in the former times, meaning when I'm alive, this took place. But in the latter times, something else is happening. And he's like, he says, there's somebody coming the way of the sea. He's talking about the Sea of Galilee. All right. And now if you look at verse two, it says you have multiplied the nation talking about God doing this. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading verse three. You guys are like, where is he at? Let's look at verse two. Let's try this one. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness upon them, a light has shined. You see, this is now he is seeing futuristically the Messiah. He's seeing a man. He, and he knows this is the Messiah. He, he's come into the world, a world of darkness, and he's bringing light. Now, all we have to do is go to the New Testament and start reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We start reading about the life of Christ. And in Matthew chapter 4, you will read these exact words from verse 1 to verse 2. That Jesus has now fulfilled this idea of, hey, I, have, I am walking along the Sea of Galilee and I have come into the darkness as light. How many of you have heard Jesus call himself what? The light of the world. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world and whoever follows me will not walk in Darkness. Now, the darkness that Isaiah is talking about here in verse 2, and even the darkness that Jesus refers to in John 8, is the darkness not like, wow, it's dark outside, spiritual darkness. Okay? But in reality, darkness that, that, that Isaiah talks about can ref be referred to in a few different ways. Darkness can be referred to as something that is evil, immoral, sinful, and wicked behavior. Darkness can also be referred to as distress and trouble. Darkness can be referred to as hopelessness and uncertainty. And most of all, it can refer to spiritual darkness. Now, when we look at Jesus and when he was here on earth during his time, 
the Jews were experiencing all of that. They were experiencing evil, wicked, moral, immoral behavior. Okay, they were they were experiencing distress and uncertainty and hopelessness. Why? Because they were under the oppression of the Roman Empire. So the Jews were looking for their Messiah to come to deliver them from who? The Romans. Okay, they were living under all of this stuff, but they were also living in spiritual darkness. You see, that's why when Jesus saw the people, they're like, they're like, he's like, they're like sheep without a shepherd. They're just wandering around. Okay. Not literal sheep, but just like a sheep that wanders with no, with no shepherd. He's like, spiritually, these people are wandering. They have no hope. They have no light. They have no direction. But Jesus says, I've come into the world to give people light in regards to spiritual darkness. He's talking about sin because in Jesus's time, in Isaiah's time, people were like still living under the law. They were trying to figure out, hey, how do I get to God? And so they kept thinking, well, if I just do the law, if I just perform better, if I just work harder, I'll get to God. And, Mo, and Jesus is like, no, you're not. You can't get there. And so he becomes a light to people. He becomes a light for spiritual darkness. Now, here's what I mean when I talked about the contrast between the spiritual and the literal. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the spiritual side of, spiritual, of, of, of giving light to spiritual darkness. He, this is, this is for, from, from him till now. Anybody who comes to know Christ as Savior, is, they're, they're delivered from the darkness. That They're set free. They, 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 come to, they have that salvation within them. But how many of you know literal darkness has not been taken care of yet? Because even though Jesus gave spiritual light and he relieved spiritual darkness for the people in his time, they still lived under the oppression of the Roman Empire. There was still distress and uncertainty. There was still, sec- there was still sinful immorality all around them. The, the, the literal re- um, elimination of darkness has not happened. And for generation, from generation, from generation, for the last 2,000 years to today, yes or no, spiritual darkness is still around us. Or not spiritual darkness, but just darkness. Okay? Times are dark, aren't they? Well, here's what Paul has to say. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, he's talking about when he, he, he's addressing when we get close to the end times, when we get close to the second coming of Christ, when we get close to where God is ready to turn the page, Paul writes this and he says, these things are going to be taking place. He says, understand this, meaning I want you to know this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, distressful times, dark times. He says, people will be lovers. Now, when I read this, think of if if, if these are not multiplying at a rapid pace in our world today. Okay. He says, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control brutal, 
not loving God, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Now, we could say, well, Jim, that's, that's been around for, forever. It has. But man, can we not really, I mean, think of just those things and how much do they just seem to be ramping up? Okay? I mean, I mean, think about, I mean, it, it's so weird. Think about the love of self. What do we call it when we take a photo of ourselves now? A selfie. I mean, talk about scripture coming to pass, you know? I mean, the love of money. I mean, one of the words I look at in in that text is brutal. The brutality of people today, okay? I mean, gun violence and, and the killing of people just... I mean, think about it. 40 years ago, when I was in high school, you know, in the 80s, the idea of a massive, um, like mass shootings, you'd ask, what's a mass shooting? Well, that's what happens in war, not in a Kmart or a Walmart. But yet that's taking place in our world today. Darkness is just permeating the world. You see, Jesus hasn't delivered it literally yet. But, everybody say but. But when the king comes, that's going to change. You see, there are, there are a couple stages that's, that's going to take place. The first coming of Christ is the partial coming. And this is found in 1 Thessalonians called the rapture. He's going to rapture the church about out of here. And then the, the great tribulation is going to take place upon the earth. And at the end of the tribulation, it talks about Jesus is coming back with his people from heaven. And he's going to establish his kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years. It's called the thousand year reign. And then at the end of the thousand years is when God is going to just create, destroy everything and make a, create a new heaven and a new earth. You see, when Jesus comes back as king, everything's going to change. Because in Revelation chapter 21 and chapter 22, and if you want to read these, I, was in, I would encourage you to read both these chapters this week. But in both these chapters, here's what it tells us, that there will be nothing sinful at that time. Nothing unclean, nothing detestable, nothing false. There will be no fear, no hopelessness, no uncertainty, and there will be nothing ever accursed again. You see, you and I live in, an, we live in a cursed world, okay? Now, we've, I don't think we really truly understand that. Because we can go to the Rocky Mountains and be like blown away, right? You watch a sunset come down and you're just awed by the colors, all right? You go to the ocean, you just kind of just like, wow. This thing is huge, okay? We are still blown away by what this world looks like and the things within it, but it is cursed. It's broken. It's rotting away. But Revelation says there's going to come a day when the king comes, the curse is gone, and nothing is accursed. You see, I don't think we can fathom what that truly means in our minds today. But listen, The king is coming, and he is going to remove everything dark. Darkness will be eliminated. Here's the second thing that's going to be eliminated when the king comes is this. Number two, when the king comes, sadness is going to be eliminated. Sadness is going to be eliminated. Now look at verse three. It says, you have multiplied the nation, meaning Israel, 
you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad with when they divide the spoil. So again, it's like Isaiah is seeing a picture, like, he, like almost a movie. And he's seeing the nation of Israel expanding because from his time to when Jesus, the nation would have expanded tremendously. But he sees a joy happening. Despite what is going on around them, he sees a joy multiplying in the people. You see, here's the thing. When Jesus came as Messiah the first time, and when he began his ministry, how many of you know he brought joy? Because let me ask you, if you were a paralyzed person, and this guy comes up and he says, get up and walk, would you have a little bit of joy? If you've been blind since birth, and he says... Open up and see, and boom, you can see. Would you have a little bit of joy inside? You see, he, he, he brought sight to the blind. He brought hearing to the deaf. He, 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 he let mute people speak, lame people walk. He raised people from the dead. Let me ask you, the mother that lost her son was weeping. And Jesus says, oh, mom, don't weep. Because guess what? Get up and walk. And that her son comes. Let me ask you, do you think she continued to weep or was she full of joy? You see, that's what Jesus did. But the greatest joy he brought to people was this. The adulterer felt loved. The tax collector was welcomed. The sinner had hope. You see, in Jesus' time, if you weren't making the cut, you were, put, you were cast out. In Jesus' time, only the spiritually elite people were, were noticed. And those were usually the Pharisees, the scribes, the special people. Everybody else, you know. So if you were an adulterer, a tax collector, man, you were, you were written off. You had no hope. But here's Jesus hanging out with these people, having dinner with them. And he's telling them, hey, you know what? I love you. And he's giving them hope. Because he wanted people to know in me, there is salvation. In me, your sins can be forgiven. And that has been the message since his death. That through him, we have hope. Through him, we have a joy. We don't have joy and hope because our circumstances change. We have joy and hope knowing because I have salvation in him, that when my life is done, I have eternal life. You see, that's the hope and the joy that we have because of what he did the first time. But guess what? When he comes a second time, but how, because how many of you know, um, sadness has not been completely eliminated. Anybody still get sad? Anybody have to attend a funeral lately? You get sad, don't you? Anybody have experienced some pain and some suffering and some hurt lately? You see, those things are still a reality on this side of heaven. We still have to endure pain and suffering and hurt and sadness. But when the king comes, oh, when the king comes, sadness is eliminated. Because in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, it says that he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. You see, when we know Christ the Savior, the Bible tells us he's made all things new in us. In us. 
But unfortunately, we still are wrapped with the old things around us, right? But when the king comes, he's making all things new. And the, the, the tears and the weeping and the mourning and the crying, gone. The pain and the suffering and the hurt, gone. All right? I'm telling you, I can't wait when I can get up out of a chair and I'm like, not have the, and my knees don't hurt and my back doesn't hurt. Anybody in favor of no pain in the body? All right? Anybody in favor of the fact that you're never going to have to attend a funeral? Anybody in favor of the fact that you'll never weep for a loss of somebody? No, all of that is gone because when the king comes, he's making all things new. You know, maybe you thought it was a little weird that we were singing, even so come at Christmas. Because here's the thing. Um, Christmas brings the second coming. The king came as a baby, but he's coming as king and Lord the second time. And when he comes, he's removing sadness and it will be eliminated. Here's the third thing. When the king comes, oppression is eliminated. Look at verse four. He says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Now he's looking at the people in Jesus' time. He's seeing people who are oppressed. He's seeing people who, who are carrying a burden on their back. Listen, under the Roman Empire, the, the Jews were oppressed big time. All right? It was like they were carrying a weight on their back, a rod being beaten upon their back constantly. So when Jesus shows up, he starts announcing some things. He starts telling everybody who he is and what his mission is. And one day, when he was in the synagogue, Jesus starts to quote, and this is found in Luke chapter 4. He starts to quote Isaiah chapter 61, referring to himself. And one of the things he says, he goes, I have come to set the oppressed free. Now, here's the thing. He's talking spiritual, not literal. All right? Because here's, we got to remember this, even though Jesus was setting the, the spiritually oppressed free, the people were still oppressed, okay? The Roman army was still around for a few hundred more years. It didn't go just because Jesus showed up. No, he was setting people free from spiritual oppression. And that's why in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lonely and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice again in Isaiah 4, 9 verse 4, he says, the yoke of his burden. You see, Israel was carrying a yoke, and Jesus is like, I want to take your yoke. Take my yoke upon you. I will take your yoke. And what he's talking about, he's like, I'm going to give you forgiveness. I'll take your sin. I'll take the sin and put it upon me. And you take my forgiveness and put it upon you. And he's like, that's why he's like, my burden, it's easy. And it's so light. You see, again, in the nation of Israel and unfortunately people today, we think we can work our way. I'll just try harder. I'll, I'll be especially good today. 
I'll be specially kind. It's the Christmas season. I'll give a little more money. Whatever it is, man, I'll just keep working. How many of you know that's a yoke? That's a burden. Because you have no guarantee if you've done enough to make yourself right with God. And so Jesus is like, hey, hey, let me take that off of you. And let me put a burden on you that's easy. And the burden that Jesus puts on us is this. Just believe in me. Just believe what I did. Come to to know me that I am the savior of the world. Come to believe that I died on a cross for you. Come to put, just put your faith in me. But boy, for a lot of people, that's a big burden. The idea of just trusting Jesus with everything, surrendering my life to him. I can't do that. You see, some people think that's too big of a burden, but Jesus is like, no, my burden's light compared to the burden of the world. You see, Jesus has fulfilled spiritually the removal of oppression, spiritual oppression. But unfortunately, the literal has not happened yet. Because like I said, the Roman Empire, it lasted for a few more hundred years. But how many would agree um, oppression has continued on and is still happening today? Okay. People are still enslaved by people. People are still, you know, put down and abused and hurt. Why? Because there are still people who are oppressors. But when the king comes, that's all going to change. See, when the king comes, he will fulfill literally removal of oppression. I wrote this down. I said, there's no longer going to be bullies, ugly dictators, abusive people. There will no longer be anyone using their power, their position, their influence, their money, or their strength to take advantage of someone, to enslave someone, to control someone, to manipulate someone, or to abuse someone, or to oppress them. No longer. No longer will a woman ever have to say, my husband is abusing me. No longer will a country be poor because of corrupt dictators and oppressive dictators. No longer will someone feel less than someone else because somebody has to put them down and make them feel less. You see, that's, that is going to be gone. And I'm going to show you why that's going to happen in a couple more points. But Jesus is going to literally remove oppression. And here's the fourth thing that he's going to eliminate. When the king comes, hatred is eliminated. Hatred is going to be eliminated. Look at verse 5. It says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for fire. What Isaiah is seeing is a time when there will literally be no hatred on this earth. A time when there will be complete peace on this earth. There's going to come a time when no more people, fighting is done. War is done. Because when he's talking about the, the tramping boot and, and, and the, the garment rolled in blood, think about that for a moment. When battles are taking place, boots on the ground, warriors and soldiers wounded with blood on their garments. He says those things, are, here's what they're going to be. Fodder for fire. It's like roll them up and throw them in the fire because that, they'll just, it's just going to be fuel. You see, there's going to come a time when the king comes, um, there will be no more war. In fact, in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4, 
It says, he shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall, there, neither shall they learn of war anymore. Psalm 46, 9 says, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. You see, Jesus is going to put an end to this stuff. No more boot camps. No more army, navy, marines. No more wars between. I mean, you watch the news today and you look at what, what you know, the Soviet Union maybe wanted to attack Ukraine. You look, at, you look at the wars of the past and how one country just decides, you know what, man, let's go to war. It's all coming to an end. When the king comes, hatred is going to be eliminated. You know, World War I was called the war to end all wars. Whoever put that little phrase into, um, into existence, did not see what was going to come. Um, because uh, war still is going on, isn't it? I mean, 30 years later, another world war is taking place. War has not ceased. But when the king comes, Revelation chapter 19, again, I would encourage you to read this chapter. You see, during the, the tribulation time, the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist is coming to power. And he is going to, for the first few years, everything's going to be fine. But for the last half of the tribulation, he is going to rule with an iron fist. And he will be the ultimate world dictator as never seen before. And he will rule people, and he will dominate people, and he will raise himself up to even be God. But at the end of the seven years, this is where in, in Revelation chapter 19, um, some people are going to get on some horses. And guess who those people are? Raise your hand if you're a believer in Christ. You are. So if you don't like horses, you better learn to. All right? Because you're riding a horse. Because in Revelation chapter 19, it says that Jesus is going to be the ultimate warrior. That is not a wrestling term. Okay? Those of you who, you'll know what I'm referring to. Some of you are like, What? He is the ultimate, I heard an amen. Is that you? I get distracted up here. Vaughn saying amen. I know who that ultimate warrior is. It's not Jesus, man. I know who he is. But Jesus is the ultimate warrior because he's going to be on a white horse leading the pack. He's not going to be a typical general sitting in the back. He's not going to be the president in the Oval Office. No, he's going to be the one and commander in chief in the lead in this army because he's going to be on his white horse. We are going to be dressed in white on our white horses and we're coming back. And it says that he's coming to make war. But guess how long this war is going to last? About a minute. Okay? It's not going to be a 10-year war. Jesus is going to say one thing and it says a sword's coming out of his mouth and he's going to destroy the Antichrist and the nations who have gathered together to wage war against the Christ and his armies. I find it interesting when it says that we're going to be clothed in white and pure. So that tells me I'm not going to be getting off my horse. I'm not going to get my hem dirty because Jesus is like, I'm not going to touch the ground. I'm just going to speak, gone, done, establish my kingdom. That will be the final battle that will end all battles. 
After that, there will be no more war. There will be no more fighting and no more hatred because the king of kings is coming. Now, here's the thing. Point number three, point number four come about because of point number five. Point number five is foundational for three and four. And here's what point number five is. When the king comes, human rule and government is eliminated. Amen. I was hoping somebody would have been, oh, hallelujah. Okay, because when he steps, when Jesus returns, human rule and government, gone. Okay? He is going to be king, president, ruler. He is going to rule the nations. He's going to oversee all the governments. Okay? Look at Starting with verse 6. It says, For to us a child is born. That phrase right there describes Jesus' humanity. To us a son is given. That now describes Jesus' deity. But from the son given, here's what's going to happen when the son, with the son. It says, And the government shall be upon his shoulder. The government upon him. Okay? He's going to take this thing over. I don't know about you, but I'm just tired of politics and government. All right? It doesn't matter how many promises a politician makes. They end up breaking them. It doesn't matter what, you know, what kind of peace comes between countries. They end up breaking it. It just seems like politics and, and government is just out of control. And I'm telling you, it's going to come where Jesus is like, you know what? I'm just going to put all this on me. And I'm not gonna, I'm not, I'm not gonna worry about a Senate. I'm not gonna worry about the Congress. I'm not gonna worry about governors. I'm not, no, no, no. I'm going to take the, gov- the government upon my shoulders, and I'm going to be what it needs to be. And he goes on and says, "His name shall be called." Now, when it's, I don't, th- I really don't believe when when Isaiah says that his name will be called this. And now he he mentions a few things. I don't think this is what we're going to call Jesus. I think these names represent who he is, what he's about, what he does. And the first thing it says, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Okay, now here's, I'm telling you, sometimes it frustrates me when I read commentaries and try to, you know, because I I don't think I'm the sharpest tack in the box when it comes to Bible study and Bible knowledge and stuff. So I I like to read a lot of different stuff. And I'm telling you the debate between whether wonderful counselor is one, like one thing or two words. And I'm like, does it really matter? I mean, the number of the the amount of material that has been written on people debating it's he's, he's wonderful. And he's also a counselor. No, he's wonderful counselor. Here's my, here's my take on it. I can sum it up in 30 seconds in about five words. Um, Jesus is wonderful no matter how you point, paint that picture. He's wonderful, okay? He brings awe to people. But then I sit and think, I'm like, I think he'll be a pretty wonderful counselor too. And here's why I think he's a wonderful counselor. He's full of wisdom. So, so on this side of heaven, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians that, that we only know in part. We don't know everything. But there's going to come a day that you and I know as we are fully known. So when I am with the king, I, I, I have this idea that I'm not going to have to go, Jesus, I got a question. <laughs> and I don't think my question is going to, like, he's going to step back and go, dude, 
I, I don't know. I need to talk to someone and I'll get back to you on that because I, you've, just, you've, you've just dumbfounded me. That's not happening. I, I believe when we are in the presence of the king, every question we have now, it's just going to be like, I just know. Because Christ is full of wisdom. So whether he is just wonderful or he's, I don't care. He's both. He's a wonderful counselor. He's wonderful. He's, how about if we just agree to disagree and just say he's both. And he goes on. Not only is he wonderful, wonderful counselor, but he's mighty God. Again, this is just his title. He, he's the second person of the Trinity. He's, he's God the Son. Fully man, fully God. And then it says he's everlasting father. Now, that is not saying that he is God the father. I read this, and I, I, I kind of agree with what this means. Everlasting father is the idea that um, as son who is king, he will function as a father over his children, that he will love them and protect them and be affectionate for them and compassionate to them. Some of you, maybe your father died when he was young, when you were young. Or maybe your father left you and you have grown up without a real father in your life. I'm telling you, when the king comes, you're going to know what a father is. You're going to experience Jesus as king, as a father figure to you like you've never experienced. All of us who have, even if you had a great father, human father, he was still flawed. Not Jesus the king. He is the everlasting father. And then he's the prince of peace. The reality is there will be no peace on this earth until Jesus comes back. Wars are going to happen. Oppression is going to happen. Those first two points about oppression and hatred and everything, it's going to continue until Jesus comes back. But when the king comes, there will be peace. And then in verse 7, it says, and of the, the increase of his government. I love that. It's his government. It's not the United States government. It's not Russia's government. It's whose government? It's Jesus's government. All right. And it's going to increase. And it says, and, and peace is going to increase and there will be no end. I love Zechariah chapter nine, verse 10 says that he shall rule from sea to sea, from the Euphrates until the end of the earth. You see, Jesus is going to rule. He's going to be the king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And it says on the throne of David and over his kingdom and establish it and uphold it. He will uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Forevermore. Think about that for a moment. As a believer in Jesus Christ, when you are with him, you are going to be with him in his kingdom forever. A billion years pass by and it's just only begun. Forever. And I love this last line. Of verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. That word zeal means it's an intense passion and eagerness. So what that's telling me is, you know what? Um, Jesus is jonesing at getting this done. He is eager. He is passionate about, and I sit and go, he doesn't know, you know, the Bible tells us that Jesus doesn't know when he's supposed to come back. Only the Father knows. But I sit there and go, is he standing ready? Is he like, is he like, like a, a sprinter in, in, in the starting blocks? And they're just like, come on, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready, ready for the game to bang and, and go. You know, are they like a kid at Christmas, just 
I'm, re- I'm ready to go. I want to open a present. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm ready. The zeal of the Lord is getting this done. Jesus is passionate. And so guess what? If you and I know that Jesus is going to get this done, and how many of you know uh, he can't lie? So if he's telling us he's going to get this done, guess what he's going to do? He's getting it done. And so if I know, hey, he's coming back. I know he's coming back. Then guess what I can do while all the darkness is still around me? I can do as... Paul tells us in Colossians 3 to set our hearts on things above and not on the things of this earth. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 18, to not look at things that are seen, but things that are unseen. And I want to read to you from the book of Luke. Just make note of this. Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 25. And just listen to these words. And tell me if this doesn't sound like where we're living now. And where we're going. And Jesus is saying this. And he's talking about the, when he's about to return. When he's about to come. He says, and there will be signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. The earth and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity. Because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now, when these things begin to take place, I love this, straighten up, raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. I don't know about you, but I look at what is happening in the world today, and it seems like there's a little bit of perplexity happening. It seems like there are people fainting and foreboding of what is coming upon the world. Now, here's the thing. As a believer in Jesus Christ, if I know he's going to get this done, I don't have to sit there with my head down and go, oh, woe is me. It doesn't mean we deny it. It doesn't mean we stick our head in the sand and pretend nothing is happening. But I don't sit there and worry and stress. What do I do? I stand up. And I raise my head and I go, my redemption is drawing near. That's the hope that you have as a believer in Jesus Christ. The king is coming. I don't know about you, but I would love to see the king for Christmas. Amen? Let's all stand and let's pray. Well, Father, we are blessed by your word. We thank you that it is truth, and we thank you that the truth is, Jesus, you're coming again. The truth is, Jesus, you came once to bring salvation, and you're, bringing, you're coming again to bring complete salvation on everything. And Lord, I would just pray for anyone here today who has never experienced the saving grace of your, your salvation to begin with. Lord, if there would be anyone here today who has never come to to ask Jesus to be their Savior, I would pray that, Lord, even in the stillness of their heart, this quiet time right now, that you would just start to make that real to them. But, Lord, I want to just pray that we would all have that hope of knowing you're going to get this done. And we can stand up and lift our heads and know that our redemption is drawing near. Lord, the darkness is getting darker. And Lord, we're not going to pretend it's not there. We're not going to deny it. But Lord, as we're walking through these days, 
Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you, our hearts set on you, not on the things of this world. Things of this world are growing dimmer and dimmer, and they are passing, and we know that you are coming. Come, Lord Jesus, but set our hearts on you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name.